my outlook on life is that um, human beings are the most amazing things in the universe. I am uh, grateful that I'm one of them. Uh, our ability to interrogate and understand our surroundings, to communicate, to have interpersonal communication like we are now, not just now, but I mean, face-to-face is amazing. And now we're doing it through podcasts and other medium. Um, I, I think human beings are destined for great things. I think they're going to overcome a lot of the problems that we see today. And so when you have that kind of mindset about who we are and where we're going to be as a species a million years from now, I mean, how can you not be enthusiastic about Listening to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast listeners, Stu from Relish Studio here. Since the beginning, we have been on board to help Megan spread the enthusiasm here on the show, and we are happy to be a part of the Maximum Enthusiasm Movement. If you're interested in purpose focused marketing, Head on over to the Relish This podcast for a weekly conversation with a purpose-focused leader or industry expert where we unpack ways to promote your organization and fuel its growth. Relish This can be found at relishthis.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's Megan with another great episode of Maximum Enthusiasm. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. I am so excited to deliver today's episode to you. It is a really refreshing dose of optimism in a time when I feel like optimism is in short supply. I am watching Australia flood right now. We are into the second week of the war on Ukraine. We are all experiencing increase in gas prices, and of course, inflation is hitting us with all of our grocery store staples and household items. Um, It's just been a cause for me personally to just really reflect on how truly grateful I am uh, between being born to two parents who reside in the United States in a safe Home is where I was raised, and then being even more blessed and fortunate to have two parents who were college educated and who believed in a college education for me. Um, Talk about just being born into the lucky sperm club and the lucky parent club and just the lucky life club. There's just so much about my life that I am taking stock of now more than ever as I watch this war unfold uh, in real time, thanks to social media and thanks to Elon Musk turning on the internet in Ukraine, it is just a really interesting um, time to be alive and to watch this event unfolding and just um, has really given me significant pause as I'm sure it has for you. And so today's guest is totally on point and on topic. We touch on two things that seem very unrelated. Uh, One is that my guest, Tony, is a geophysicist. So we talk about renewable energy and becoming energy independent and also why gas prices are going up. The second topic we talk about is Tony's Passion Project, which is a podcast where he interviews veterans of our um, country's historical wars. 
and brings those interviews to life in his podcast called The Warrior Next Door. And he talks about the significance of that project. And again, I was just really touched by the poignance and timeliness of both of these topics. And he brings them together in such a a beautiful and magical way in his jolly green giant affect. Um, You won't get to see him, but I'll have a link to his LinkedIn profile. You can check him out. He's just a a jolly giant indeed. And he's just so refreshingly optimistic and hopeful for our humankind. Um, I did note that another article just came out, I believe on Insider, basically saying that we have now potentially passed the tipping point as far as our planet and climate crisis goes. I mean, we don't need to look very far to have a reason to be down in the mouth. And Tony is just the opposite of that. He's a reason for the corners of your mouth to uplift today. And I'm thankful that I get to deliver an hour worth of optimism to you. So I hope that this reaches as many people as possible because the world needs as much jolly Tony as possible um, every day. And uh, to conclude my intro today, I just want to say that, um, I'm really, really excited about this new venture I've been working on for about the last year. It's a company called Breathe and Boldly Go. It is my coaching company, and I have been honestly blown away by the interest and the demand, specifically from female lawyers, but um, I also coach a couple male lawyers too, all of whom own their own practice or at least control their their caseload and their, their practice management and helping them really decide on intentional schedules and caseload selection and lifestyle by design. We talk a lot about health, wellness, self-care, just really life management and some tips and tricks to managing financial stress and sort of the feast and famine trends of uh, specifically personal injury work, which of course is my background. So I'm just really excited that something I sort of breathed into the universe about a year ago when I said I would really like to try coaching um, is coming to life. And so you can learn more about that if you're interested on my website, meganhotman.com. I don't only coach lawyers, uh, but I will say I'm definitely inclined to work with um, especially entrepreneurs, people who own their own companies while they are navigating life's challenges. And I have benefited from the help of several coaches in my life, and it is just such a joy now to continue working with my coaches as I now work with clients too. So again, you can learn more about that on my website at the coaching page on meganhotman.com. And I will conclude this intro this morning by sharing a poem that just to me, um, I reflect on frequently, especially just these days with things being so crazy. It's the guest house by Rumi, Rumi's guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Uh, I love that poem for so many reasons, not just in terms of the people that we meet and encounter on a daily basis, but also just in terms of the headlines and the news and the 
life events that we're all being um, dealt and confronted with right now, I, I have just really appreciated the frankness of that poem, and I reflect on it frequently. Um, a related final share as I wrap this intro is that this morning I was walking my dog Ramsey and I saw this woman and her dog that I frequently see um, most mornings. Her dog's name is Frederick. And we stopped and we were chatting about our dogs and whatnot. And she shared that her husband had passed away uh, about 10 years ago after having been at home on hospice for the better part of a year. So he basically um, was home with her as he was um, winding up his final days. And she said that as he was nearing the end, um, he, of course, had been bedridden. And she looked up to see him standing in the living room. And he said, I'm going to go now. And it was very surprising to, to her to see him standing, for one thing, and then just to have such clarity in his statement, I'm going to go now. And she said, okay, um, you know, let's get you back into bed and got him laid back down. And shortly thereafter, he took his last breath. And she said what was so magical was that her dog, Frederick, looked from her husband and then his gaze went up towards the ceiling um, as though it was watching her husband's spirit and soul transcend. And it was just such a powerful story. And it was so powerful to me that a relative stranger is sharing such an intimate moment and it has just touched my day. And it's one of the reasons I love talking to strangers because you seem to get that true um, transparency fairly quickly. So that's my introduction for today as I set the stage for this wonderful friend of mine, Tony Lupo. Enjoy today's episode. And thanks as always for tuning in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. Today, I am joined by friend, fellow cyclist, amazing, badass, geophysicist, oh, podcast boy. host, Tony Lupo. Welcome to the show. Hey, well, you got the last part right. My name is Tony <laughs> Lupo. I do ride a bike. I'm not sure about the rest of the modifiers, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> Tony is a badass cyclist. We've been mountain biking a few times. He has far more years under his belt than I do on the dirt. And he's been such a patient teacher. And um, we've just had some great experiences on the bike out there. And one of my favorite parts of riding with you, Tony, is that because you bring this geophysicist background to the bike ride, inevitably in Colorado, we come upon some cool rock structure formation or whatever. And you're able to be like, oh, well, let me tell you the story of that. Oh, yeah. This, this, is, uh, this is utopia for me. I grew up in the flatlands in Michigan where the only ge geology I could see was glacial till. And then I come out to, to Denver. I've been here about what, eight or nine years now. And everywhere I look, I see, you know, ancient river valleys and, and huge mountains that have been eroded away and, and fossilized animals that existed in some movie that you can only see on an IMAX. So anytime I'm out and I see those rocks, I'm taken back to these lost worlds and you know, if I can share it with people, that's great. Sometimes they tell me to shut up. Sometimes they tell me to keep going. It's it's their call. Well, we, and by we, I specifically mean your neighbor, T-Mac and I, uh, we, the three of us have a really great time. And I know T-Mac and I just love having you break down the geophysio stuff for us. Um, remind me what it was again, the, the big unexplainable gap in a rock formation, I believe in Utah. And it represents like millions of years that no one knows what happened. Yeah, it, it's an unconformity. It's an area that either never had any sort of sediment deposited upon it, 
or did, and then was eroded away as it was uplifted, and then younger sediments were deposited on top of that. So it can represent a gap of time. And in fact, I think the world's um, largest unconformity is in um, is in the um, the Gunnison area, um, the Black Canyon, the Gunnison. That's it's the one you were the talking about. Unconformity, and there's over a billion years of missing time between. You can stick your finger, your thumb on one line, and above that thumb is something that is a billion years younger than the stuff below your thumb. So those are the sort of things that when I see them riding, they kind of humble me, and they're also like in awe that we're able to have the ability to understand these things through scientific investigation and then enjoy it by riding bikes and sharing it with other people. We are amazing creatures. And I love the fact that we can share these sort of things with people. And for our listeners who aren't seeing you the way that I am, um, and we'll post some photos of you too, but you truly are like the gentle giant. Tony is a big, strong man, um, would be intimidating to bump into in an alley. And yet he's just the most jolly, jolly, jolly human I've ever met. And I so appreciate that about you. I, I am I am jolly, rarely in a bad mood. And, uh, and I think that's... Um, I forget which philosopher said it, but they said, you can always tell the wise person in the room because they're the one that's happy. Now, I don't know if that's true because I've met oh, some happy, happy people that weren't entirely wise, but uh, I, I do know that um, I, I embrace my jolliness. It's in my DNA. And um, yeah, I appreciate that. You appreciate it too. Some, I drive some people nuts. They're like, if that's a bunch of crap that you can be that happy. You must be fake, but I'm not. It's who oh. I am. <laughs> well, so I have to I have to do a slight tangent on this because it really does go to the essence of this podcast about maximum enthusiasm. And so you alluded to it being a genetic thing for you. But in all seriousness, to what do you credit your pretty consistent level of joy? Um, I, it, it's a number of things. I think I think some of it does have to do with, you know, some people are born old and they don't have a sunny disposition. And I was you know, blessed not to be born that way. And then I think a lot of it just has to do with your outlook on life. My outlook on life is that um, human beings are the most amazing things in the universe. I am uh, grateful that I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, our ability to interrogate and understand our surroundings, to communicate, to have interpersonal communication like we are now. Not just now, but I mean, face-to-face is amazing. And now we're doing it through podcasts and other medium. Um, I, I think human beings are destined for great things. I think they're going to overcome a lot of the problems that we see today. And so when you have that kind of mindset about who we are and where we're going to be as a species a million years from now, I mean, how can you not be enthusiastic about that? You're amazing. Uh, (laughs) And our interview, frankly, well, (laughs) our interview, frankly, couldn't be more timely. And it's especially poignant today because Ukraine is under attack by, um, their unfortunate neighbors and and um and so you talk about human beings being amazing and your just you know enthusiasm and your optimism and it's just really nice to hear that on a day when the news is talking about not only just the total despair of the people in ukraine and watching some of their posts on social media coming through i mean it's incredible we we live in a similar society as they do a democracy i mean this could happen to anyone you know it's it's not that far from home and um kind of more to the point of really your specialty. So you are a geophysicist, chief geophysicist for an energy company in Denver. Mm-hmm. 
And what we're reading today, especially in light of this attack, is that you know gas prices, energy prices, things are going to go real sideways here for everybody, just in light of those issues over there. And so, you know, give us some hope on how we might eventually power our cars by water um, and how we can break our love relationship with oil and gas. Yeah. Well, first off, what's going on in Ukraine is unfortunate. And even though I'm overly optimistic about the trajectory on as humans, there are blips along the way, and this is one of them, and people are dying, and it's terrible. Uh, we will overcome this, and we're already starting to see the world rally around Western powers. Maybe maybe the silver lining from this, this is a key to happiness, it's little things, is that um, we're going to we're be reminded about how precious uh, a Western democratic society is. Totally. And I think it's going to force Western nations who have been rudderless these past 10 years circle around a cause, a cause of freedom. I think we're going to isolate uh, Russia and there'll be a pariah state just like North uh, Korea. Yeah. And Putin can bask in his lonely power grab in a, a, con- in a, in a country that's huge and mostly frozen and desolate. Right. So, right. Um, so, But what we did see, in, in, which is relevant to the conversation today that you asked me to, to talk about. The podcast. Is, yeah, the podcast. is, yeah. is the, So well, with your podcast is that the oil prices have spiked. They went over to $100 a barrel, and then they dropped back to $92 a barrel. And here's a little inside baseball for those who may not know. Energy companies don't really want uh, energy prices to be super high. We need to make enough money to make a profit, but $100 a barrel is um, is bad for everyone. Um, first off, when we see high oil prices, that means that the companies that we pay to help draw our wells, they can charge more prices. So what you end up seeing is this kind of runaway inflation effect where the prices are high, people are paying more at the pump, but overall, over time, the energy companies don't make any money, much more money either. They will make more money for a short term, but then that whole supply demand thing catches up. It hurts the economy. Um, the, the bottom line is, 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 is these sort of shocks to the system are why a lot of energy companies are starting to shift away towards renewables. So the company I work for is a, is a small to mid-cap company. It's not a large company like an Exxon. But we're, we do have a market cap that's well over a billion dollars. We employ hundreds of people. And what we've, what we've faced um, over the past five years or so has been we've been forced, quite frankly, by our investors. And if we don't have access to capital, then like any large corporation, we wither and die. So these large um, uh, investment groups that fund a variety of things, including oil and gas, have basically told us, why should we give you a billion dollars over the next 10 years when renewable energies may end up uh, stranding a lot of your oil and gas? We may not need it. And in fact, why don't we take all these things that you're good at, which is uh, distributing energy, um, characterizing the subsurface, looking for certain things that we may need uh, as, as renewable energies outside of hydrocarbons, and, and why don't we have you redirect these monies that would normally go towards oil and gas exploration towards hastening this uh, green energy revolution? And so that is happening. Uh, and you can read about in the papers. And uh, Shell Oil Company, which I think is the second largest privately owned oil company in the world, has announced that they're not going to spend another penny on exploration. That these billions of dollars that they normally spend to look for new reserves to replace the old ones, 
is going to go towards renewable energies and the Amazing. ability to deliver them. So it's, it, it is, pardon the, the, the pun as a geophysicist who works with seismic data, it is a seismic shift in our industry uh, that we are uh, being forced to do that. And so I say forced because that's what it was initially. But as, as the energy industry started to look into this more seriously, because they had to, they started realizing that, yeah, there, there's a lot of, of symbiosis. There's a lot of ways where we can transition from being oil companies to energy companies. And we can take all of this scientific and engineering background that we have and redeploy it into this space. And in fact, a lot of green energy companies right now that are developing different types of energy, they're hiring like crazy from oh, wow. the energy sector, which I think is a positive sign, to be honest yeah. with you. So... Uh, Megan, I was sharing with you a particular type of renewable that I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me and too. I, <laughs> people may have heard of it in the past, the hydrogen economy. So um, you've probably heard a lot about uh, EVs, electric vehicles. You've probably heard of Tesla and the in, in a, a number of other cars like the Leaf that are being developed, right. the new pickup trucks that are, are pure EV. And so it it appears to be the wave of the future, but there are some there are some things that we need to uh, address. Right. Um, one the battery components. The, you just nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, the battery is a big deal. Yep. They're made of rare earth elements, and they're heavy, and they have a finite lifespan. They're not technically renewable. They're encased in plastics, and um, and we we're I think we're just only getting to the point now, Megan, where some of these Teslas will start wearing out, and they're going to end up going to some sort of landfill and we don't know what that looks like. That's right. So how else can we do this? And 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 also the other issue with um, EVs is you don't know where electricity is coming from. Sure. It's coal burning somewhere to make it. <laughs> yeah. Like in Boulder, Colorado. Yep. You could have uh, issues with recharging. If you're driving around town in EV, you're fine. But if you want to go from where we live in Denver to Nebraska Good or luck. Michigan, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, and then if you do find some fast recharge uh, station, you're still going to be putzing around there for 45 minutes. Yep. So here's here's what here's a way to re, to use renewables to create another product that can be used in uh, green energy. So another renewable energy source, or two of them, are solar and wind. And uh, the problem with solar and wind is they don't have a very high energy density. The sun disperses uh, its energy very weakly over an area. And so when you use solar panels, there are parts of the world and areas where you need large solar farms, and they can collect a lot of electricity. But in a lot of areas, you can collect electricity during a day, but you need it at night. So what do you do? And wind is the same thing. We put up a wind farm. It's usually the windiest. Um, Around the day to three o'clock. But what do I do when I need the energy at night? So what you have to do is you have to transfer from those form of energies during the day to a, a, a conventional power plant at night. And that's highly inefficient because these, these power plants, whether they're coal, gas, doesn't matter what they are, they just kind of have to keep running all the time. Yeah. You can't just shut them off and shut them on. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. may not know that. They, they require a base load. They can ramp up and down, but they can't turn on and off. Uh-huh. So you could develop something called a super battery, which is a battery that can hold all of this energy and then make it available through transmission lines later. But batteries aren't very efficient, believe it or not. 
Hmm. They've gotten more efficient, but they're not efficient enough to be able to have that be economic at all. Gotcha. So what if, what if we took that energy that we generate from a wind farm or a solar farm, which is clean energy, and instead of um, um, having to worry about when it's, it's going to send electricity to the grid, what if we were to take that electricity to, to, um, to run an electrolysis unit to generate hydrogen? And the two, and then you could take that. Let, well, let me just start with there's two different types of hydrogen that we could develop. One is called blue hydrogen, and one is called green. And so blue hydrogen uses natural gas. Now, before the people out there start going, boo, hiss. <laughs> right. Here comes the energy guy. He wants to keep using natural <laughs> gas. We heard that from Chesapeake years ago. Let, let me tell you how blue hydrogen will work and then green hydrogen. So blue hydrogen would use natural gas as the feedstock to pull the hydrogen from. So a methane molecule is one carbon surrounded by four hydrogens. That's a lot. So you could put, there's already pipelines that can transmit natural gas. There's literally millions of miles of existing natural gas pipelines. You could tap into one of those. You could pull in the hydrogen. You could direct it towards a wind or solar farm. You could use your spare electricity that would be wasted anyways to run electrolysis to separate the carbon from the hydrogen. Wow. Now, let's talk about the carbon. The carbon comes out as, as a particulate it will come out as a product called carbon black, which is something that's really important for us, for our tires, for inks, dyes, mm. for all kinds of things, uh, for, for bittering materials. So if you don't want your carbon to go into the atmosphere, then why not make it a solid product that never goes into the atmosphere? And worst case scenario is you landfill it. Carbon is really an inert sub, uh, subject. It's not like barium plutonium. It's just gotcha. it's carbon, right? So we can either use the carbon for other products that we're already extracting using natural gas, but now we can use it for methane. And, uh, and worst case scenario is you, can, you could landfill it, but there's enough uses for carbon black. We'd probably be able to use it. Well, okay, so that takes care of the C for CH4. Where does the hydrogen go? It can go in that same gas pipeline. We've got millions of miles of gas pipeline out there. And hydrogen is significantly lighter than methane. Oh. Hydrogen's just, it's the most abundant element in the universe. And you've got it. A little teeny single uh, neutron proton thing floating through there. And you got these really heavy hydrocarbon natural gas um, atoms. <laughs> you, could, you could put those in there. And then you could separate those at a processing facility. Um, you could send the hydrogen to people's homes for hydrogen fuel cells to generate electricity, to oh, run wow. their heating, everything else, electricity, or you could have it, uh, put it in, in containers and ship to gas stations, filling stations that already exist. And then you can very quickly, much more quickly than recharging your car, refill your car with hydrogen. So let's talk about Amazing. that. We've, yeah. I mean, so, so this is really cool. Um, so we've already talked about what happens to the carbon. It turns into a hard thing and we use it for other products. The hydrogen can go into two types of engines. One is a hydrogen fuel cell where the hydrogen is used to uh, make electricity. So it foregoes the need for a battery 
and the electricity can run an electric motor, which means you have an EV that runs off a molecule <laughs> instead of an electron. And the byproduct is? Uh, the byproduct is nothing. There's right? absolutely no emission. Zilch, zero, <laughs> nada. Complete. Now, the, now, what people will say is, well, you, you pulled uh, methane, which is an emission, to make this product. So I'm going to get to green hydrogen in a minute. Okay. But, but you've already broken the, the – you've already sequestered the carbon through the process of electrolysis. So, so even though you use methane feedstock, you've kind of sanitized it by breaking it apart into carbon into hydrogen. Carbon turns into ink black ink and mm -hmm. the hydrogen goes into a fuel cell or this was just announced last week cummins who makes engines for diesels and ships yeah. and trucks they have three new engines out that can run all these engines can run on gasoline or diesel or hydrogen wow or natural gas so there so that means that now you've got a diesel fleet that you can pump hydrogen. And if you don't want to make it an EV, you can just burn it. We all saw pictures of the Hindenburg blowing up. So we know that hydrogen is very flammable. And it would burn in an engine and it, it wouldn't release any CO2 into the oh atmosphere gosh. at all. So so I, I'm, I am really excited about the use of hydrogen to help us overcome fossil fuels and some of the issues that we have with his, with traditional EVs. So I'm going to explain one more thing and then I'll open up for any sort of questions you may have. No, you're doing great. Thanks for okay. keeping it very digestible and understandable too. Cool. I hope so. So now <laughs> let's go to green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is instead of having the feedstock for your hydrogen be methane, it's water. H2O. That's it. The problem with using water this is where the physics comes in, is it takes eight times more energy to separate the hydrogen from the oxygen. So if you have a methane molecule, you can, you can pluck those hydrogens off using one-eighth the energy, one-eighth oh, the electricity wow. as water. But that doesn't mean we can't do it, and it doesn't mean we can't scale up to do it. And it is truly the holy grail for a complete closed-circuit um, green energy solution is we bring the water feedstock in, we continue to develop our electrolysis techniques so that they're more efficient. And all electrolysis is, is you inject a buttload of current into something to cause it to break apart into its constituent parts. That's all it is. So if you could do that with water, we've got a lot of water in this planet. We, there's, yeah, you we, blew my mind when you started talking about the core of the earth. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's water... Of, you know, for tens of thousands of feet below the surface, for those who may not know, the first, you know, two, three, four hundred feet below our feet, below the surface is generally what we call our freshwater aquifer. Once you get well below that, um, you get in the deeper rocks, the older rocks, and the water down there is very brackish, very salty. And that water is fossilized ocean water from when those rocks were deposited, you know, somewhere below sea level and then raised up into the continents. So if you were to drill a hole pretty much anywhere in the earth deep enough, you'd see a freshwater column and then you'd go into a salty water column. That's fossilized seawater. 
And then you could go down many tens of thousands of feet and then pretty soon it gets so hot that you don't get anything. So the ability to source water, whether it's by an ocean. So, so we're not taking fresh water from rivers to do this. Right. Right. We could, we could drill wells and pull water out. Or as we drill oil and gas wells, a byproduct is this nasty, salty water that we need to dispose of. Why couldn't we redirect that to an electrolysis unit that can break? Now, in this case, the hydrogen and the oxygen. So now you've got, you're just releasing oxygen or you could take the oxygen and liquefy it and use it for like SpaceX fuel, rocket fuel. There's all kinds of uses for liquid oxygen. And then the hydrogen, again, can be used use an existing gas pipeline to distribute it anywhere in the country. And so you've got two different ways to generate hydrogen. Both of them are sustainable. Both of them allow you to pull hydrogen, which is the most abundant element in the universe, to help generate electricity and do work and get us away from the fossil fuels we're using now. And I think that's pretty badass. That's so badass. Well, and especially the green option that you mentioned, because then the byproduct of us using that to run our cars is literally just, um, you know, steam or just uh, a little wa- like water in the air. How would you describe that? Yeah. So the, the you would pull the water out and you would break apart the hydrogen, the oxygen from the H2O. And then the oxygen, you can just release that back in the atmosphere or you could liquefy it and use it for a variety of uses that we use oxygen for put it in tanks for hospitals. And then the hydrogen would go into a fuel cell. And like if that's running your car, engine. then and what does your emission look like? Just water? It's just... It, so it's nothing. So for the okay. electrical part, the 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 moving hydrogen um, um, uh, atoms would create the electricity for the EV. And in um, an engine that would burn it, if you wanted to do it that way, Amazing. you'd end up with some, some nitrous oxide that would come out, but you can run hydrogen really lean because it's so flammable lean means you put a lot more air in in the the cylinders and just a little teeny bit of hydrogen and so your emissions are almost nothing now the green hydrogen option you've taken uh carbon out of the entire chain right it's not there at all no no black nothing yeah totally so um so i i think that that's that i don't think i know for a fact that these technologies are being uh, scaled up, stood up as they call them. And okay. um, there's one in um, Nebraska that's taking um, methane right now, generating hydrogen and breaking out the carbon. Now the problem is because we don't have a hydrogen economy yet, what they're doing with the hydrogen is they're mixing it with ammonia to make uh, nitrogen for fertilizer. Oh. But they could just as easily say, well, let's not mix it with nitrogen. Let's put in a pipeline if we can find a place to send the hydrogen. Got it. Just like that, you're burning that in cars or, or fuel products. So I, I actually think that the future of energy is going to rely very much on a hydrogen economy, which I think is really cool. It's exciting. And at the same time, it sounds so far off, even though, as you're alluding, we have some existing infrastructure. We're still just such an oil and gas minded world and country. I mean, does it take a few of these large world events? Does it take this, you know, panic of the the global temperature rising by 1.5 degrees where we're all in trouble if we get past that point? You know, 2030 has been established as kind of a tipping point. Do you see these technologies uh, being stood up that quickly? Uh, yeah, I do to some degree. So, um, 
The, the thing about climate change is for a lot of people, it's very abstract. Uh, they have a hard time imagining what, you know, one and a half degree Celsius change increase in mean temperature is going to do for their lives. And there are a lot of people who do understand it. I mean, I know that's something that you're concerned about. A lot of people are concerned about it. Um, so, so it's, it's, it's really hard to use that as a stick or a carrot to, uh, to get people to adopt hydrogen. I think the shocks that we're seeing in Ukraine, I think these high energy prices, I think the volatility, the instability, I think that's going to drive it. And that, that, and then these investors that lubricate, uh, every element of the energy sector that's basically stepping up and saying, it's real easy, guys. We're just not going to give you any more money to do these things. Right. But we'll give you all kinds of money to invest in these other technologies. So eye-opening and fascinating to learn that and sort of the insight coming from 1% for the planet as well, that um, the the shareholders and these investors, when they sit around in a room and decide where the money's going to go, they get to really kind of call the shots on some of their requirements and the funding will be withheld if greener measures are not taken, which is, you know, yeah, that's where private sector overcomes anything that the government could try to do quickly. And it's kind of revolutionary, literally, because I think in the past, um, what everyone thought investment community was, was nothing more than a bunch of rich white dudes, basically, yep. that were just looking at the bottom line. And that's still the case for a lot of the finance um, uh, uh, teams that are out there. But what we're witnessing now is for the first time that I can think of or have read about, the finance committee is the finance institutions are wagging the dog. They're saying they're saying we're willing to uh, forego profits today for larger, more sustainable profits in the future. And And that's pretty revolutionary, right? Most of these companies think quarter to quarter, right? Totally. So it 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 really took that quite frankly more than anything to um to initiate this revolution that we're seeing and then there's there's a bunch of other things that are being worked on with making um you know wind and solar panels more efficient i mentioned a super battery battery earlier we're still working on that of making the battery it's so efficient that you can store these um overage these you know, the, these unused the electrons. Yeah. Yeah. The daytime flows. And in fact, for people traveling across the Midwest through these wind farms, you've probably driven through on a windy day and you've probably seen a bunch of the, the blades not turning. Yep. And you may have thought, were they broken? No, they're not turning because they don't need that electricity. What if you kept those suckers running all the time and you were charging batteries and make it hydrogen? I mean, we could be energy a hundred years from now could be darn near free. If, if we do this right. And it would be amazing. It would be a game changer, right? Well, I mean, you just think about like that Texas snowstorm last year taking out the grids. And I think I just read something today about how Texans still owe close to $1 billion, I think. And, you know, those overage charges, some of them racked up nine, $10,000 electricity bills during that time. Um, this would certainly alleviate those types of crunches that we get ourselves into. Uh, it, it would. And, um, can I can I extend this dream to even a little bit further? Yes, go for it. Please right. do. Let me let me let me. So everything I just talked about up until right now, what I'm about to talk about is being worked on right now. You can go to some facility somewhere and, and see, see it. it. 
Okay. This is something you can't see yet, but I can, I think that this is what's going to grow into. So you just talked about power outages, right? And how vulnerable our power grid can be to a variety of things, weather, a... um, hacks, Russian hacks, right? That's right. I would argue most houses have some sort of uh, line that carries natural gas to their house. And if they don't, they've got a tank that can hold it like propane and deliver it that way. Mm-hmm. Imagine a future where we're producing so much hydrogen that these lines are carrying primarily hydrogen to fuel cells that are sitting either in a neighborhood or along an individual house. All your power needs, all your heating, all your electricity, all your cooling are generated from these these hydrogen fuel cells sitting outside your house. And how often do we have problems with our gas lines not working? It's frequent. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so if you look at power lines, power lines, you get uh, ice All kinds on, of them. Yep. You can crack. But if you have a gas line that's buried, you know, a couple feet below your house, it's going to be immune to weather attacks. It's going to be immune to, you know, any sort of malicious hacking or an EMP if you want to get really freaky and electromagnetic totally. pulse. Um, and so then what you have is instead of having a centralized distribution grid, it's completely decentralized. You'll be able to walk outside and say, this is my power station. It's right here. It's the size of an AC unit. Amazing. It would be. And then think about what the world would look like when we cut down all those power lines, right? Every street you go down, those big grids that we have, I mean, you probably keep some of them for industrial purposes, but the residential neighborhoods, all of that, instead of, could you imagine 200 years from now, someone looking at a picture of one of our streets in 2022. With all the above of ground infrastructure. And saying, so you tell me that you had these big wooden poles stuck up everywhere, had wires hanging off it. I mean, doesn't that seem janky? We got used to it, but it's janky. (laughs) Very sloppy. Yes. I mean, have you seen those pictures like in India or poor countries where all the wires are all hanging everywhere? I mean, so so we don't have that, but to someone a couple hundred years from now, looking back at our time, they're going to take snapshots of street like Wadsworth and 86th, and they're going to see all these lines and stuff everywhere. And they're going to be like, man, what a bunch of cavemen. What a bunch of savages. Yeah, totally. <laughs> meanwhile, they'll be building homes with our leftover Tesla batteries, our wind turbine <laughs> blades, and all of our old power poles. And uh, those things you just mentioned, Megan, are the unseen uh, problems that we still have to grapple with, even with the renewable power grid. I was just, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, I was just listening to a ritual podcast a week or so ago, and he hosted oceanographer Sylvie, and I forget her last name, but she's 85 years old, and she's basically kind of led the industry on the health of our oceans and how it affects all of us. And she was talking about the rare metals as you alluded to, that are required to run these EV batteries. And um, she was talking about how it takes like a random piece of a shark ear or a random piece of a coral that breaks off that's like the size of, you know, a pin. And then gradually these minerals form around it. And to pull something out, even just the size of like a walnut, takes 10 million years to form. 
And so if you get something, they found one large one that's like the size of a football. And she said, it's inconceivable how long that thing would have mm -hmm. taken. And, you know, we're down there pulling them out um, and using them to turn into these EV batteries. And she said, that's the interesting thing about the ocean is this perception that what's in the ocean is free. And there's really only a certain number of countries that are mining those materials, but are basically, um, you know, scouring and scavenging those those on on behalf of the entire earth they're going to run out because we haven't figured out how to reform those and i'm all about ev technology don't get me wrong mm -hmm. but that definitely is a concern is like what do we do when that's not a renewable resource either yeah and, and that's a great point i think if we're going to be uh really open-minded and critical thinkers about this problem we can't just say we need to get away from oil and gas because it's dirty and it's old we need to make sure that whatever we replace it with is um, is sustainable as well. Otherwise, all we've done is kick the can down the road. Right. So right. the rare earth element issue associated with batteries and EVs is a big deal. And you're right. There's a lot of companies that are starting to dredge the ocean floor doing God knows what to the ocean. We can't know. Uh, not only that, but in a lot of parts of, of certain areas of the ocean, there are these layers called methane hydrates. It's basically frozen methane crystals in the mm. seabed and when you perturb them a little bit pressure temperature they they um they they, they subliminate they be, they turn into gas and then you get these huge methane plumes that can come out of the ocean and methane's far more dangerous as a greenhouse gas and they're so here's my geoscientist coming in there have been geologic extinctions in the past where a perfectly viable hypothesis is that there was a big methane burp and the methane caused everything to superheat and killed off um, 80% of the species on earth. So totally do, we foreseeable. Really, do we want to be digging around in that stuff? That's right. Well, and there's tons of ocean drilling too, which I wasn't really even aware of until she started talking about that. Um, so yeah, I love where this is going. I love where your head's at, where your company's head's at. Um, it sounds like we're moving in the right direction, hopefully quickly. And, you know, of course, in the meantime, we'll keep riding our bikes and driving our cars as, as little as possible, but it's an unavoidable yeah. part of our society. And um, the other part that struck me again about just being so timely that we're talking today and when we spoke early about Ukraine invasion is that sort of on the side, you've been doing this really incredible, oh. incredible project since back in the early 2000s, right? These interviews started... Um, 2003 was one that I heard today, but maybe they went back even before then. You've been doing this Warrior Next Door. Well, they started as interviews. It's now a podcast. And you're talking to veterans about their war experiences. And I was listening to one of them today where you're talking about just the sheer audacity that this one ship was able to take down, I think you said 10 or 17 submarines. Um, a bunch of newbies, basically, yeah. it sounded like a bunch yeah. of amateurs got together and were really highly effective. So tell us all about this incredible project. Yeah, no, you, you got that right. And so there's, so around uh, 2003, um, a, a close friend of mine and I were working for an energy company in Houston. We became good friends. We had a lot of things in common. We loved history. We both had, you know, really interesting uh, histories in our family that we like to talk about. And we liked listening to old people tell us things. We just did. We thought oral histories is where it's at. You know, it's unfiltered. It's just it's just from that guy or gal. So we wanted to focus on on initially, you know, military history, even though all forms of history fascinate us. 
And uh, so we, we decided to become uh, volunteers for the Library of Congress and on our own dime, never asked for a penny, never made any money off this, uh, asked for uh, veterans to allow us to interview them. And once we started interviewing a couple and they trusted us, they would give us leads for other people to interview, and then they would tell their friends and their friends, and it snowballed to over 200 interviews Wow! Uh, all over the country, uh, reunions, um, houses. Uh, I, I feel you know really grateful uh, that I've been able to meet a lot of these veterans, and not just meet them, but we stayed in touch with a lot of them. We went to, you know, um, we went to their memorial services, quite frankly, a lot of these most of these men and women have died, you know, um, they'd mm. all be in their late nineties now. Sure. So because of that, Ryan and I thought we can't just let these interviews sit in the library of Congress. It's like, I always get that conjure up that image of the Indiana Jones movie, walking through the halls <laughs> of, of this big warehouse. I mean, who's going to go in there to listen to these really amazing stories. So the warrior next door ethos is this one. Everyone's story is interesting. They didn't have to be a Buck Rogers. That's why we call it the warrior next door. Two, these people live around us. You don't need to go anywhere to find them. They're in your grocery stores. They're there. That's amazing. And three, because so many, especially in the World War II generation, people were passing on, we feel like it's our job, our responsibility to keep these stories alive. These guys can't go to high schools and colleges anymore and tell people what they did. That's right. So what we do with our podcast, we don't just play these interviews from end to end. We take each uh, veteran we interviewed and we cut out select clips. And as we play clips, we try to add commentary to let people know, hey, this is what was going on at the war when this person said this thing. And so oh, helpful. Yeah, I think it is because we want to get people who aren't maybe big history buffs to want to listen to this and, and, and learn a little bit about it. So it has taken off. We've been doing this for five months. I think we just had our we're really close to our 25,000 download. Gosh, amazing. Um, it's, 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 it's really, really awesome. And uh, we do it because it's a passion project. So if anyone out there has any interest in history at all and want to hear really cool stories, you can go to any uh, place where podcasts are hosted and you can type in The Warrior Next Door. I'm pausing for effect. The Warrior Next Door. And uh, click on an episode. And if you think it sucks, go to our Facebook page and tell us and we'll try Aww. to fix it. If you think it's great, then subscribe and keep rocking on. It is so great. And I have to say, I found so much more value in the pauses where you provided more context, you and your co-host, and you would share um, the book that you were talking about that TMAC had recommended to you from the guy from Golden, Colorado, yeah. who Unless sort of you, refused. Yeah. What was yeah. his name? I think it was called, um, it, the guy's name was Colonel Fertig. Yes, yes. Yep. And uh, it was a book about him being a, um, a, a gorilla fighting in, uh, the Philippines in World War II uh, after the United States got kicked off the island by the Japanese. So, and, and like, here's, here's something else I want to add. So because of this podcast, all of a sudden people are reaching out to us. They want us to interview them and this and the other thing. And so what we're trying to encourage people to do is if you know someone in your life that um, has, you know, look, anyone has a history. If you've got a grandma or grandpa and you haven't asked them how they met, if you haven't asked them what it was like growing up in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, then shame on you. <laughs> I'm joking. Most people get to don't. it. Yeah, get a recorder out. Sit down and record it because it may see ho hum to you now. But there was one interview I did where about three or four months later, this old lady called me up. She goes, You know, did you interview so and so? I said, I did. She goes, Well, he just died. I said, oh. I'm sorry to hear that, ma'am. She said, I know you interviewed him but I can't find 
any copy of that. Will you send that to me? Oh. Absolutely. How many do you want? So we sent her the DVDs. She called me up a few weeks later crying, saying that they played his interview on a loop at the memorial service, <sighs> and they felt like he was back there with them again. Just to so, hear his voice, yeah. Just to hear his voice, just to see him. And, and not only that, most of the people at the memorial service didn't know he did all these things. So if you have a recorder, record it, put it in some digital format somewhere, and you never know, 50 years from now, someone might hear what you recorded, and it might mean everything to them. That's great advice. Thank you for that. I love it. And just hearing these folks on your podcast talk about their experiences and, you know, here we are looking at a potential world war unfolding right before our very eyes in real time. It's something that most of us haven't lived with as part of our reality. We've been fortunate enough to live in a time of essential world peace since our birth or close to something like that. Um, and so this is a really, this is a really timely time for me at least to have tuned in and I just so appreciate the episodes and just I'm sure what it meant to those folks to have the chance to be heard and be seen and be it was it was it was a lot of them said it was cathartic a lot of them oh, said they man. never talked about it with anybody sure I just interviewed somebody two weeks ago and his daughter texted me and she said after you left he asked for a, a glass of wine which he never does because he said he was quote unquote really excited and amped up it amped him up. It got his juices flowing and he wanted to sit down with, with some wine and just hang out with his daughter. And, uh, man, to, to even be, uh, peripherally, uh, you know, um, aligned with people and experiences like that is a real blessing. I don't take it for granted. I love people. Mm -hmm. I think they're amazing. They all have a story to tell. So, I mean, on that note, Tony, I, I know you're from Michigan. I know you've always been in love with history and, the creation of our world as we know it. I mean, what, what is your history? How did you get, how'd you get to, to here? Um, crappy weather. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I grew up in Michigan and didn't enjoy, uh, the outdoor sports as much as I do now. I was an inner city kid. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, next to the Fisher body GM plant, uh -huh. um, in a, a lower middle-class neighborhood. And, uh, and so I, I, I didn't, I didn't have access to things like, you know, skiing or mountain biking or any of those things. Um, so I always dreamed of, it's like, it's like, why do people live in this God awful state? It's so cold and cloudy here. <laughs> I remember watching Super Bowls that were being played in the end of January in Arizona and it was beautiful. So my, my, my dream was always to, um, to move out West, to get, to, out. get out of here. And the odd thing is, is now I go to Michigan all the time. See my I know you walk. do. So weird. It's like I hated it then, but now I'm okay. Humans are so fickle. We are so fickle. And the reason that the geoscience thing came into that, because that was my vehicle to get out of the state, was to go to school, get an education, and work in the energy sector or some other sector, but outside of Michigan. My path to geology uh, came from a photo of me when I was six years old. It was a Christmas, and there's a school of philosophy called Tabla Rasa, means blank slate, it means we're all born as a blank slate. And what we're exposed to when we're young will have a, a significant impact into what our interests uh, will be as we get older. And I don't know why I was so interested in geology. And then um, as I inherited all of these old photos of me from my mom, she probably got tired of holding on to them. I ran across one. I'm six years old. All I'm wearing is a baggy pair of white Hanes underwear. <laughs> my hair is all tousled, and I'm holding a geology kit. Have you ever had, I know you have, that experience where 
you forgot that you remembered something where something Ooh. jogged your memory and all these memories come back. You're like, oh yeah. So I started to remember playing with that geology kit for hours. And I wonder if maybe that etched, did that etched on me a little bit? And that's why I got into the geosciences and ultimately in the physics. So, so that, that's my path out here. It was getting away from crappy weather. It was a geology kit when I was six years old and it was wanting to go out to the beautiful mountains and be able to touch the things that I'd read about for so long. Mm, which we certainly get to do. I mean, in and around even just the golden area and dinosaur Ridge. And I mean, the fossils are just right there next to the bike lane. You can see them on every bike ride if you want, let alone the mountain bike trails and all the evidence there. You, uh, you certainly can. And, uh, boy, I, I don't think there's, um, a view out here yet that I've taken for granted. They're like fingerprints. The lighting's always different. The time of year, the snowpack, the rain, the water, it's, it's, it, it's really beautiful. But for those people not living in Colorado, beauty is where you find it. I've been on some uh, bike rides in Michigan in the, in the kind of the, the, the hilly, swaley um, uh, uh, hills to the south of town with all these cattle out there mooing and the humidity so thick you had to wipe it away. And I thought that was just as awesome. Okay, not quite just as awesome, but it was so awesome. <laughs> Close. I mean, for those who haven't gathered this just yet, it, like riding bikes with Tony is like being with a kid in a candy store. It's so fun. It's just a different way of experiencing it, and it's just so enjoyable. I just appreciate it. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about your high school because you said, you know, inner city sort of next to a factory. So, you know, there probably were opportunities to get into trouble. Were you a pretty straight edge kid? Were you a, a student? Did you prioritize, like, did you play ball sports? So my friend would describe me as the smartest dumbass they ever knew. <laughs> so I was always, I was, I was always really, I'm, I'm serious. It was funny. I was out uh, meeting a guy, a friend of mine that I had not seen for years out for lunch a couple years ago in Michigan. I had my sons with me. And when he, one of my sons asked this friend of mine, I go, so what was my dad like growing up? And that's exactly what he said. He goes, Tony was the smartest dumbass I ever met. So what did and he mean by that? So this is what he meant. Um, <laughs> I was always really good at school. It was really easy for me. Um, I, it kind of bored me actually. Initially, once I got to college, I wasn't bored. I was challenged and I loved it, but I was a risk taker. And so I, I would do a lot of things that got me in a lot of trouble. Nothing that was like felony, um, but you know, well, I got my license suspended before I was even sixteen for stuff I was doing when I was fifteen, um, when I should have had a license when I was doing those things. Um, I was not a very large guy, so I did play sports, but I played baseball and sucked at it. And then I did track and wrestling and was better, okay. but I always kind of had a chip on my shoulder, which is why I got into weightlifting and why I don't weigh one hundred forty-five pounds now. I weigh two hundred. <laughs> Um, and so I, I, I boxed for a while. Again, it was that insecurity of, you know, being a little skinny dude. So oh. I'm 5'11", you know, but I was 145 when I, when I graduated. So high school for me was just trying to get through classes that bored me and get into a lot of trouble with cars and girls ah. and things like that. But you know what? Um, I think some people need to go, not go through it. Some people need to survive that. <laughs> And then once they do, then they can, they can leave it behind. And I think I needed to do that. I don't, I don't think I could have been the kind of person that just always did the right thing to get to where I am now. I think I had to screw a lot of things up first. Oh, are you firstborn? What's your, where are you in the birth order? Firstborn, oldest son, two younger sisters. 
One sister, I had to defend her honor multiple times, sometimes against guys much larger than me. Ah. That was another part of uh, growing up uh, that sucked is um, uh, I had two sisters. They were beautiful. And Shelly was 18 months younger than me. They thought that we were twins for a long time, but she was a grade younger. And she always had guys chase. I think every friend I had growing up didn't come over to see me. They wanted to see me so they hang out with my sister. <laughs> I mean, at least you kind of know what their ulterior motives were. Well, it wasn't until I was older. For a while, I thought, man, I'm a real popular dude here. People <laughs> like hanging out at my house. And as I got older, I started, you know, chasing like, girls wait myself. a second. It's like, yeah, they, they're all, is Shelly over there? <laughs> so, so, yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. Go ahead. So I say I, I grew up in, uh, like I said, near that big GM plant. There was factories everywhere. There was, uh, you know, it would have looked more like Pennsylvania than the sort of Michigan that people think of like beaches and stuff. It wasn't like that. And now you're the dad of twin high school boys. Yeah, they're, they're seniors. Uh, one is going to take after his grandfather, my dad, who is a retired diesel mechanic. And I, I'm pretty sure one is going to want to get into the trades. Okay. Uh, he just doesn't like school. They both did great in school, but, you know, one just really hated it. The other one, uh, so that, that's Lawson. Cameron is uh, really interested in, in analytics and marketing and business. And so he's going to go to school for that. I mean, what does your view of what the future holds for these young men look like as someone who's walking alongside them through this crazy, like, COVID experience impacting so much of their high school and like the world that we're sending them into with everyone working from home and just things being so much different than when you and I were entering the workforce. What? I'm actually excited. Surprise. Um, <laughs> first off, I, as a parent, I thought watching my kids go through high school was a drag because, ah. you know, they had a bunch of classes that they had to go to. And, um, you know, they did good in high school, but, you know, they, it, 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 what I'm noticing now that they're seniors and the things that they're, you know, filling out applications for and looking into is now they're doing things that interest them. Uh -huh. And now I finally get to see what kind of young men they're going to grow into. I know character wise, and I couldn't be more proud of them, but are they going to be able to sustain that when they're away from home? Yeah, I think they will. Are they going to be able to, you know, make a life for themselves? I do. And in fact, these disruptions that we've seen, uh, COVID, what we're seeing in Ukraine and whatnot. Yeah, they suck and I'd prefer not to go through them. But humans are really resilient and adaptable. Mm -hmm. And I almost think that it's mixing things up and it might make life easier for them instead of being trapped in an office, you know, every day, five days a week. They may have the ability to to live where they want to live and 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 work there and and do things that I I was shackled to my job for years yep. living in some places that no one would want to visit. And I, I think that they're going to pursue what they want to do and they're going to have some opportunities in, in growth technologies like space. Like they're going to, they can go into one of the things that Lawson was thinking of doing with maybe doing aviation electronics. And in Denver, we have Amazing. SpaceX here. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think, I think we're going to overcome some of these issues that we have. We're always going to have things to work on. And if you look at the trajectory over the past couple of hundred years, um, We've gotten more comfortable, more wealthier. We've had more access to more amazing stuff. And I think that will continue. Hmm. Always so thrilled to have your enthusiasm by osmosis. It's so nice to just have it rub off in your presence. 
okay, so I know you're a voracious reader. I know your mind is like an encyclopedia. Are there any books that are not like uber sciencey that you think could really touch listeners? Things that you think would just be really powerful reads, uh, especially kind of given our time in this place right now? Oh boy. So, you know, it, it, there's a number of books that I, I really like. I like history books. I like science books. Um, I think behavioral psychology is really important to me because it helps me understand myself and other people better. Um, and so, you know, any behavioral psychology books like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and whatnot, um, are absolutely, there's, there's one, it had to do with, um, boy, maybe it's something I can send you later Yes, please. on your website. I can't remember the author, but it, it, it talks about how so much of what we are struggle with just has to do with our misunderstanding of other people in our, in our, in our blind spots. And trying to recognize that we have them. Yeah. Um, so I, I I do a lot of behavioral psychology research. I love that. Oh, cool. I think, I think the reason I like history, and one of my favorite history books is what widely considered the first one ever ever written, which is Herodotus. Okay. Is because if you read Herodotus, don't let the translation fool you. The same narratives that we talk about today, about traveling, about experiencing cultures, about trying to understand the people that came before us are all in a book that's, you know, 5,000 years old. Amazing. And so what I've learned from that is we've got this, uh, we've got this heritage of history that we have captured through a variety of means and by uh, reading and studying that. It's not just about what happened then. It's that people are people and it can be a guidebook. It can be a cheat sheet for how to handling, how to handle the things you're doing today. Mm. Because, you know, as, as Solomon said, there's uh there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> I love it. I mean, we so couldn't have a more perfect summation of this whole interview than that. <laughs> so, so outside of a bunch of history books I read, I really like the really old classic history because they remind me that I'm no different than them and the things that they struggled with, I can learn from. And I love behavioral psychology because it helps me learn myself and it helps me interact with other people better. Cause I can look at some behaviors and say, it's not their fault. It's okay. They're uh. behaving that way, that they're not bad people. This is just what humans do in this situation and don't judge them for it. Mm. Powerful reminder. Well, and on that note, I have to ask you one more question because it's something I grapple with and it's kind of the perfect culmination of like science and geology and psychology, which is uh, my pendulum swings on a moment by moment basis where I both realize that the stuff in my life is the most important thing in the world to me and I give stupid shit way too much of my time (laughs) and energy And also that my life is literally a grain of sand from an entire beach of sand and in the scheme of the universe and the planet and all the things, it is so minuscule that it's, um, it's, it's meaningless. And so it can mean everything to me and it can be meaningless. And I'm sure you have the same, especially with the geology work you do and just putting a hundred year lifespan into context of things that are a billion years old. So how, how do you, where do you, how do you ride that? Yeah, I, I, we do. Uh, like, I, I'm for me, a young rock is 10 million years old at that yesterday <laughs> when someone said that's 10 million years old. I'm like, okay. But at the same time, I'm reading a book that's 5,000 years old and it feels ancient to me. So it's weird. Uh, how we can, 
how we can kind of warp our time around it. I look at it this way. I think a lot of people fall into the, um, the schema, the mindset of, uh, you know, there's billions and billions of stars and, and there's just us and we're Johnny come lately's and there's a bunch of stuff that's been here before us. But I look at consciousness, which is what we have and is allowing us to do what we're doing right here today and allowing you to wonder about these things and ask me about them. Just that to me is holy. Just the ability to do that is special. And I look at the universe and it's, it's how vast it is. And um, there may be, we don't know, we might be the only life in this universe. I doubt it, but we may be. But what we do know is that life is exceptionally rare. It's not common. And that consciousness, like us, goes against most of the laws of thermodynamics, which state, as a physicist, that things start in organized state and wind down. And yet here we are popping up from the chaos as this highly organized state that does amazing things and communicate and feels in ways that's hard to define. And if our universe can create the conditions for consciousness, then it must be part of the universe itself. Because mm. the universe can't generate anything that's not a part of it. It can only host and generate and make tangible what's already a part of the universe. So if, if the universe can create conscious beings that can do things like this, then in some ways it's conscious. And if it has conscious like that, then... Um, then, then that, that, that tells me that there, there are planes of existence and things out there beyond ourselves that, um, that I look forward to seeing someday. So I, I don't want to get too religious on you because I'm, I, I don't want to go there. What I'm trying to say is I never take for granted how special our existence is, how beautiful it is, and uh, there's no way that that's a grain of sand. My therapist always says energy doesn't go away. It's not created. It just changes forms. Do you agree with her? I do. And it, it's, it's proven in labs. We have conservation of matter and energy. And yet we do know that at some period in the not too distant past, if you look at what eternity is relative to uh, the universe coming into existence, that, that all of a sudden all this stuff came into being. And scientists, my atheist friends who are scientists, really struggle with that. They don't know what to do with that. Well, I do. Oh, you're so powerful and just gentle all at the same time. It's just, I could talk to you for hours. That's why I love our bike rides. I hope we get to get a ride in together sometime soon. Thank you well, so much for your time and your expertise and insight today, Tony. Well, and you're, you are an amazing person yourself, Megan. You are, Thank you, friend. you have more energy than anyone <laughs> I've ever met in my oh. entire life at any freaking age. <laughs> and you are super, super wicked oh, smart. And I, thanks. I, I feel blessed that I know you and I Aww. thank you for inviting me on this podcast. And, uh, you know, to your listeners out there, if you haven't met her yet, she'd be this, this blonde haired woman on a bike running by like the devil was chasing her. So, uh, <laughs> and she does far more than ride bikes. So I'm, I'm very happy you invited me on here today. I really Aww. enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. Well, I'll be sure to include links to all of the, um, things we've talked about. I'll have you send me that book as well. And then as far as a direct website, you mentioned your podcast is accessible on, I found it on the Apple podcast app, but do you also have a website? Is it the warrior next or something like that? Yeah. So right now we just have a Facebook page, which you can look at uh, the warrior next door podcast, but we literally talked to a girl last night who's going to build a web page for us. And each, 
the webpage will feature all the veterans we, we interview and some ancillary documents. So be on the lookout for that. But for right now, uh, like us on a podcast or Facebook and you'd be doing us a solid. Will do. Well, you got my five-star review today and I'm sure this episode of yours will as well. So thanks again, Tony. Anytime, Megan. Uh, can't wait to ride again. Uh, I'll be behind you as you're dusting me, but I can't <laughs> wait to there. ride. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.